What's up, everyone? Happy Monday. It's Casey coming on to let you know that there is still time to sign up for our live summer collective. We start on Monday, April 3rd, and it goes until June 7th. So if you want to sign up and pass this test, either one and done or once and for all, head over to our website, www.studynotesava.com and get ready for the best 10 weeks of your life, going through the entire Cooper book, the entire fifth edition task list so that you can slay either your BCABA or your BCBA exam. Love you, mean it. Study notes, ABA. ABA and a little X right away. It's behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. And we are here with episode 135. Oh my gosh, Casey, what do you have for us today? All right, this is a good one. Are you ready? Episode 135. You don't want to die alone? Well, tune in to today's guest and you will thrive. Nice work, Case. You really are getting better at the rhymes, I must Look say. I'm like smiling. So I'm like, I, that was a good one. No, that was. It's better than what you've done in the past. So I'm proud of you. All right. Now, before we get going with today's episode, as excited as I am, it's important that we toot our own horn or have you guys toot it for us and give us that reinforcement. So Casey, can you go ahead and give us our review of the day? All right. This review came in from Aga13. Hello, ladies. I am a BCABA currently studying to take the BCBA exam this spring. I purchased the two-month cram and started following you on Instagram after finishing my master's program. You both bring a fun, exciting, and relatable energy to the field of ABA. This podcast gets me through my daily commute to work and de-stressing after a long day. Please continue to make more episodes. Love you. Mean it. And because of this review, you can bet your bottom dollar that we will continue to make episodes. We love and appreciate you and thank you so, so much. We hope that we can always be a part of your daily commute and be in your head before a big day at work. So today's episode is filled with behavioral concepts. I'm going to give you a few right now. I mean, the behavioral robot's going to give you a few right now of what principles you may be hearing throughout. And extra points for you if you're able to identify different concepts throughout the podcast. All right. So behavioral robot. Yes, I am here. All right. Today's behavioral principles are adaptation, selectionism, antecedent intervention, variable ratio, schedule of reinforcement, reinforcement, preferences, environment, mass trials, response, effort, extinction, baseline. There are just so many. I cannot say them all. So there is a few. All right. Thanks for that, robot. All right. Let's go. Let's jump right into who our guest is today. I am really, really stoked for this podcast. Just I think so many people are going to be excited about first of all, the book that this guest has written, as well as the content and the usage of behavioral science in other areas outside of like our regular ABA and autism. So Casey, why don't you give a little foreplay into who our guest is today? I would love to. So our guest is Logan Yuri. 
She's a behavioral scientist turned dating coach and the author of the best-selling book, How to Not Die Alone. As the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge, she conducts research to help people find love. After studying psychology at Harvard, smarty pants, she ran Google's behavioral science team, the Irrational Lab. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, Time, the Washington Post, GQ, Glamour, Vice, and on HBO and the BBC. She is also a featured speaker at South by Southwest 2021. Logan Yuri, welcome to the show. Yay, so happy to be here. Casey, I was I was worried you were gonna be like SXSW. I didn't know if like you knew something. I, I have some swag. Yeah, no, I just kept thinking <laughs> of, like she's for sure. It's about actually you. it's funny you say that because as I was getting there, I'm like I think I know that this is South by Southwest, so I really hope You nailed it. it. No, I'm, I'm proud of it's you. It's also happening right now, or maybe it just happened last week, so I feel like it's like top of mind. Yeah, that, that's exact. I, when I was in Austin, I used to dabble with going every now and then, and then like I'd Airbnb my place out sometimes to make some extra money back in the college days. Um, I, I just want to tell you, getting started, that reading this book, so we get a lot of books sent from our guests, and often it's like very hard to read <laughs> a lot of them. But this book, first of all, your style of writing and your your ability to like cross-discipline reference of all the different like studies that you've put in here that are, you know, not necessarily in relationships, but apply to like your your context is so amazing. It like reminds me of a book like Blink or um any of these Thank you. Uh like behavioral books. And the fact that you work with Dan Ariely, that's like, how was that? I need to know, how was that? It's extremely life-changing, like truly. Like I think if I were to look back on inflection points in my life, meeting Dan and getting to work with him was a major one. I That is like goals. When, when I saw that, I was like, okay, now we're done. Yeah, he really is so nice, such a generous person, like inspirational in terms of how he lives his life, just – super life-changing person to be around. You you have cool background, I got to say. So tell me, now like you've worked at Google and you met your husband there? Yeah, so my husband and I originally met in college and we just had one lunch together, which we probably would not remember, but because this was like the Facebook days, so you would have lunch with somebody and then add them on Facebook, we know when we met and we also even have like he wrote on my wall. Oh, my gosh. Something I know. I, I'm like RIP walls, although I guess they're still walls. But yeah, he wrote on my wall like, hey, you weren't in class today or something. So we have like some evidence of that. But we were just Facebook th friends then for another seven years. And then we met again at Google and then we were friends for a year and then we started dating. So definitely a, a slow roll. I, lo I love how you talk about that because you do talk in the book how you said like, I don't think this is someone that I would necessarily choose from, let's say, like a dating app or just. Yeah, I actually saw him. I think one of the first lines of one of the chapters is, I once swiped left on my husband on Tinder. And it's true. It's like, I mean, now I've looked at thousands of people's profiles and I have more context, but his is an example of one where it's like, he's not that into taking pictures. So all the pictures he had were from, you know, a wedding he'd gone to or a hike that he'd gone on with some friends. I don't feel like they were super representative of him. And I was just like, eh, like looks kind of like a bro. I'm not interested. 
Amazing. So tell me, you say you're like, you're looking at a lot of profiles all the time. What does it mean to be the director of relationship science at Hinge? Like, what does that role yeah, it, look like? I know it, it's, it's a, it's a cool title. I'm, I'm happy about my title. I feel like it, um, I feel very lucky to have the job. I get to think about dating all the time and my job encompasses a few different things. So a really fun part of my job is getting to pay attention to dating trends. So for example, last year I was hearing so much about sober dating. Like so many people I was talking to were like, I'm not drinking anymore. Or like I did dry January and I'm going to stick with it. And I am finding that other people don't want to drink on dates or I'm having trouble. Can you help me navigate sober dating? Like I just kept hearing about this. So then we did a bunch of research into sober dating and we found out that during the pandemic, a lot of people had taken a break from drinking and liked it and wanted to not drink on dates. People had also had more creative dates during the pandemic and wanted to keep that going. And we found that Gen Z is very conscious of things like well, hangovers give me anxiety and I don't want to feel that way. Or I really want to meet the person, not meet the two drinks they've been on. And so they also were pushing for sober dating. And so it was like, I was hearing about something in the zeitgeist. I got to do research on it. And then we found this trend. And then I get to talk about that in the press. So, um, you know, getting to go on TV or talking to journalists or talking on podcasts about it, that's kind of the flow of my job. And it's really fun because I feel like if I didn't work at Hinge, I would just be hearing about this, but maybe wondering like, is this just a Bay Area thing? Is this just among my clients? But this way I get to hear about it and then test in a global way, is this happening everywhere? And sometimes the answer is no, but a lot of times the answer is yes. And I just find that process of research and you know, confirming or not confirming a hypothesis really fun. I mean, the different things that like you've tested out at Hinge, which we'll talk about in a little bit, are fascinating. And so you getting into the relationship area, I know that you spoke about in the book that you were like having your own dating issues while working. Mm -hmm. Was it while you were working at Google? Yeah. Like it was, um, you know, 2014 around the time I met my husband as a friend and I had dating apps. I was doing a lot of dating and I just really felt like this is totally new. Like I had done OkCupid, which was a website in 2012, like before it was an app, but when Tinder launched and there was just like this app-based dating, swiping, all of that, I just was like, this feels profoundly different and really intense. And like, just the, you could like find yourself feeling really addicted to it. I just could see that something different was happening. And I was like, this feels hard for me. I bet it's hard for other people. Like, I want to learn more about it. You actually spoke about that in the book about, and which is like our love language talking about Skinner. You had said mm -hmm. that Tinder, this is what you said. I mean, don't, I'm, you could fix whatever I say, but it was along the lines of that it becomes almost like a game. Tinder became like a game for people to like, if you swipe right, are you going to get that like or not? And so like, just thinking of that behaviorally, it's like that variable ratio schedule and like, uh, comparing like Skinner with the pigeons, right? To like, when are they going to get the pellet of food? And so people get like really hooked in. 
Mm-hmm. Is that what you? Said? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, I was quoting somebody else who had said that in a movie. But yes, like same idea applies. Like I was really feeling like, oh, this is a, this is an action that you know I just spent like five hours swiping on my phone the night I got Tinder. Like there's something going on here, and I want to explore it more. So really approaching it not from a place of expertise, but from a place of curiosity. So with that being said, so I got divorced this past year, so I've been back in the dating game. Wah, wah. Um, <laughs> and now that these dating apps are available, when, you know, when I was dating before, it wasn't the same. Uh, and there's just all this possibility, right? Like there's like endless amount of supply. Well, not really in Dallas. Like looking for like a Jewish guy in Dallas who like observes Shabbat is like, you know. But in general <laughs> – and then you talk about these three dating tendencies. And in one of them you spoke about specifically, like the maximizer made me think like these dating apps are not helping that situation of always feeling like there's something better out there. Can you tell us a little bit about these three tendencies that you discuss in the sure. book? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely can. But then I would also say, you know, I do work at Hinge and I really like Hinge. I like what it stands for. I feel like some of the qualities that make you know, that were, that that I was experiencing on Tinder in 2014, Hinge doesn't have, you know, there is like no swiping. You have to comment on somebody's picture or send them a like on a certain piece of content. Like it does slow you down. And even Hinge's onboarding is intense enough that onboarding, for those who aren't familiar with the term, is just um, the process of joining an app or using a service. It's, it actually is kind of intense and 25% of people who start it drop off and that's on purpose so that the people who make it through are actually interested in dating and not just, you know, playing sort of a swiping game. So just, you know, making the distinction that I choose to work at Hinge because I really do think that they are net positive and so many people I know, including people in my family, have gotten married from Hinge And so, yeah, just a big fan there. Yeah, let me talk about the three dating tendencies. So this is something that I came up with when I was coaching and I was thinking about all my different clients. And I was like, all right, I have a lot of different clients from different backgrounds, different countries, different people, but feels like there's something that they all have in common. Like what is this underlying thing? And it was unrealistic expectations. And so each group has unrealistic expectations about something. So the first one is the romanticizer, and they have unrealistic expectations about relationships. And so they are waiting for their love story. They feel like there's one person out there for them. They have a soulmate. They believe in love at first sight. And there's really a sense of everyone gets a love story. Where is mine? Why haven't I gotten mine yet? You know, my my parents had this great marriage and they they met in high school and like that hasn't happened for me yet. And there's really a yearning for this particular we met story and particular relationship. And what happens with them is it's easy for them to get into relationships because they get excited about things, but then they often abandon relationships because they feel like, oh, it's too much work. It should be effortless. If this were my person, we wouldn't be having this miscommunication. Mm-hmm. The second type is the maximizer, which you mentioned, Liat, which is somebody who has unrealistic expectations of their partner. And so they really feel like if I keep searching, if I keep looking, I can find the quote unquote perfect person. And what that means for them is, all right, I have a spreadsheet of the last 15 people I've dated 
And I wish I could just make this Frankenstein version Mm -hmm. of the best of all of them. And in a coaching capacity, they often come to me and are like, hey, like I know exactly what I want. Can you help me find this person? There isn't a sense of curiosity of like, well, why hasn't it worked out yet? And what do I need to do differently? And so for them, there's really this emphasis on like, if I find the perfect person, everything will work out. And then the third one is the hesitator. And these people have unrealistic expectations of themselves. And so they're really hard on themselves. And their internal narrative is, if I lose weight, then I'll be lovable. And then I can start dating. Or if I get a promotion at work, if I clean up my apartment, if I deal with my relationship with my friends or my family, then I can start dating. And so they're not dating at all because they're not putting themselves out there because they feel like there's something about themselves that they need to fix and then they'll be ready. And of course, when somebody really is a hesitator, if in, even if they do that thing, it becomes the next thing. Like I recently had a student in my dating boot camp who was so sweet and such a quintessential hesitator. And he was talking about how he's um, doing martial arts and he wants to have a black belt before he starts dating. <laughs> and I'm just like, do you think anyone in this room thinks I can only date someone once they've achieved a black belt? No. <laughs> And just so like cute, even saying though. out loud, it was really cute, but even saying out loud, like he knew that it was like an excuse that he was putting forward to procrastinate, but it really in his heart felt like I, I can't do it yet because what they worry about is I'll meet someone great and they won't like me for who I am yet, but I have to become this other person. And then if they meet that person, they'll like me, which is inherently irrational, but I can see where they're coming from. And so for the hesitator, it's really about helping them realize no one's ever 100% ready for dating. And the one thing that, so Leah and I were just in Miami with our friend Carol, and we were sitting around one night drinking wine, and Leah was like, we need to play popcorn with this book. I've never played popcorn. I didn't even know what it was. It's like an elementary school, I was like a elementary school teacher before. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm reading popcorn. Are you paying attention? Pick up from where I'm reading. It was like that. (laughs) Oh, that's cute. Yeah, I, I I used to be the nerdy popcorn person who would be like, oh, I can't wait to yeah. read out loud in class. That's how I was. I was like, when's my turn? When's my turn? But yeah. there was another word called a satisficer. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was me because I didn't really sure. identify that's with a, any of the other good, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this isn't my original concept. There's a sociologist who came up with this, which is basically thinking about how people make decisions and people are maximizers or satisficers. So he came up with those two terms. So a maximizer we describe is somebody who feels like they have to do a ton of research, look in every, like turn over every leaf, see what's out there and then make a decision. And a satisficer is somebody who figures out what they want, sets a bar. It could be a high bar. And then once they find something that satisfies it, they go with that thing and they don't wonder what else is out there. So let's say you had two undergrads who were looking for jobs. The maximizer might apply to 50 jobs, try to have conversations with all of those companies, figure out the differences in comp, work-life balance, location, teammates, manager, things like that, and then be like, okay, out of all of these, which is the perfect one? And then even when they make a choice, they might still have doubts because they're like, oh, I should have gone with the other combination where the comp was lower, but the work-life balance was better. They're always in their head saying like, what else could I have done? Whereas the satisficer might say, all right, I want to live in this city. 
I want a job that makes at least this much and I'd like to be interested in the topic. And once they find something like that, they take it and then they have less doubts about it because they had goals and they satisfied them. And so maximizers are afraid that if they stop maximizing, you know, they're going to lose their edge. But what I try to promote in the book is that it's not about feeling like you made the perfect choice. It's about feeling happy about your choices and satisficers tend to feel happier about their choices than maximizers. Now, can you say the difference for anyone listening between settling and being a satisficer? Because I, I know in the book you do talk about it. And I think a lot, I'm assuming a lot of people hear it initially and they're like, oh, well, that sounds like settling, you know, like good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. And so if people are curious what they are, they can, um, you know, get my book and there's a quiz in it or there's a quiz on my website at loganyuri.com slash quiz. And it's really fun to see it because people are often surprised by their results and then they send it to their friends and then their friends are like, no, that's how I see you. Or they might score highly in two. So I see a lot of like romanticizers who are also hesitators. And it's like why they're hesitating is because they're a romanticizer, things like that. I'm glad you brought up the word settling because it's definitely a trigger word for many people. And it's a word that comes up all the time when I'm talking to people where they're like, great, so you're telling me to settle or like Logan Yuri's advice is to settle. That's really not how I feel. My way of looking at it is that you should figure out the stuff that really matters and you should figure out the things that matter less than you originally thought. So you should take some things that you thought were deal breakers and move them into the pet peeve category. You should be willing to be flexible on things that don't really matter. And then double down on the things that do and compromise on the things that don't. So I still want you to have high standards on things like, how does this person make me feel? How do they treat me? What side of me do they bring out? Do I want to be that person in my life? But then other things like this person wore a hideous outfit to our first date and then wore the same hideous outfit to our second date. It's like, okay, so that person has bad style and appears to repeat outfits. That's okay. <laughs> like that's not a deal breaker. You could certainly date someone who had bad style and probably go shopping with them as well. And so really helping people understand it's not that you should settle and find someone who doesn't make you happy. It's that you should compromise on the things that are less important and really double down on the things that are important. You gave an example in the book, which I loved, and it is so true about you know, like being a satisficer and you gave the example. And by the way, anyone, I cannot even cover like a tiny bit of the amazing examples and like content in this book. Like there's so much I want to ask about. And so you guys have to get the book because, and for anyone who's a behavior analyst out there, you know, like studying for your test, you literally could go through this book and like tact each behavioral principle you see. So really get your hands on this book. But one of the examples that you gave in there was about a winter jacket. And about, you know, and I am the, I literally buy stuff to return it. Okay. Like I'll go shopping and I'm like, whatever. I could just, I mean, we just went to Zara in Miami and I'm like, whatever, I'll just buy it. If I don't like it, I'll return it. And, and I'm on the other side, like, do I really need this? No. And I would never mm -hmm. buy to return. Like I'm going to mm -hmm. settle on something that mm -hmm. I want and that's all I'm going to get. I'm not going to get yeah. extra. I'm not going to get things that. Yeah. And we're so different. I'm going to call aspect. you on bullshit. You order so much crap from Amazon. No offense. <laughs> I don't return anything. I like like no, what that's, I get. That's because you're bad at returning. <laughs> I still have your hat. All right. But so in it, you talk about this, like a jacket. Like if it's, mm -hmm. if you have 30 days to return it, 
Or if it's like Nordstrom's and you have like 90 days, it's like, uh, do I keep it? Do I not? Do I keep it? Yeah. So this is really talking about rationalization and how our brain really does help us feel better about things and that our brain can go into overdrive being like, okay, I bought this jacket, it's final sale. So I have to fall in love with it. And then you start wearing it. And you know, obviously you take the tag off because you can't return it and you start wearing it and you figure out what outfits it looks cute with and you get compliments on it and it just becomes part of your life. Versus if you can return it, you don't take the tag off, you have it hanging in your closet. Every day that you go to wear it, you're like, ah, I might actually end up returning it so I won't wear it today. And you keep doing this pro-con list in your head. And that process of the pro-con list actually convinces you not to like it because once you have that many cons, you can't really forget them. And so part of what I'm encouraging people to do is to make a decision and stick with it. Because once you've made that decision, then your brain will start rationalizing why it's right. But too often, we just don't make a decision. And then we're in that in-between whirlpool trying to decide. And I have a very extreme example of this, which is that two weeks ago, my husband and I bought a house. Congratulations. Thank you. And it's our first time buying a house. We hadn't been looking for that long. Obviously, it's like the most money we've ever spent by many multiples. And I got really freaked out. And I've heard that this is normal, that people have buyer's remorse. But like the next day when it closed, like when we, you know, heard it got officially accepted and this and that, I was just like hysterically crying because I felt really overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And I was just waiting for the rationalization to kick in. And like day one, it didn't kick in. Day two, it didn't kick in. And my husband and I would just talk and I'd be like, where is it? It needs to arrive. My brain, what are you doing? And like, we would have these long conversations where I'd be like, I know you want me to be more excited. And I know you're like waiting for me to tell you why this is great. I'm just not there yet. And it ended up taking, yeah, basically like 10 full days. And then I just processed it. And now I'm like, I could give you the 10 reasons why it's great. But it was really interesting to be aware of that rationalization and be aware of how your brain ends up saying like, yes, this is why it's right. But when it didn't kick in, I was like, oh no, what's happening? Like I rely on this as like a mechanism for making big decisions and then coping with it. It's amazing that you're like able to realize that, you know, like a lot of stuff, like just like you know, studying behavior. A lot of stuff I'll be like, oh God, the extinction burst about to kick in. They're about to go crazy when that reinforcement's not, you know, like, and like, mm-hmm. I wait for myself with those things too. Like the same way. It's, it's totally interesting. Okay. So Casey and I were just discussing this one. This is the last one in this, this like area that I want to ask sure. about. Okay. So the secretary problem and Casey, I cannot wrap my head around it. <laughs> The, the the 37% piece. And yeah, let me, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I'll, so I'll explain it. Yeah. So I want you I'll to talk about it. It like, it's, it's, well, if you could give the rationale of why you're even explaining it in the book and then explain what it is and explain it to Casey. Cause I was like, no, it totally makes sense. Like bad with fractions and percentages, I think. <laughs> Yeah, let me walk you through it. And my encouragement will be to focus less on the exact numbers and think about it more as a metaphor. This is a part of the book that I've gotten a lot of questions on. I think there's something about it that feels intriguing and curious to people. And so for you two and for anyone listening, I would really encourage you to see this more as a metaphor and less as an exact thing, but I will explain how it works. So 
I have many clients who are maximizers. And as we've discussed, they just want to keep searching and searching and searching. And there's a story in their head. The longer I search, the more perfect the person I will finally find will be. And I absolutely don't think that's true for a number of reasons. One being that it just is easier to find someone when you're younger because there's more people in your age range who are single. And two, as you get older, you get more set in your ways. And so I like to think about it as in your 20s, two people coming together are a startup. They're like, all right, we're figuring things out. We're going to build an HR department. We're going to figure out payroll. And they're collaborative. In your 30s and beyond, it's more of a merger where two complete companies are coming together. And they're like, well, I have my own HR department. I have my own payroll. I'm, I'm the CEO of mine. I'm the CEO of mine. And mergers are notoriously hard. And so it's it can be harder to meet someone when you're older because you are more set in your ways. And so I know many people are single in their 30s and 40s and beyond and looking, but just making the point that there is something valuable in finding somebody earlier because of those factors. Okay, so let's talk about the secretary problem. So I heard about this through a book called Algorithms to Live By. And the secretary problem is based on this area of research called optimal stop theory. So it's basically when you are searching, when is the right place to stop? And so this is how the secretary problem works. You are a CEO and you are hiring a secretary and you have 100 candidates. And I want you to imagine that they're waiting in your office and you have to interview them one at a time. And after each one, you have to say yes or no. You can't go back to number three after you've been to number 25, right? So each one, one at a time, you have to say yes or no. And so the question is, when should you decide who to choose? Because if you decide too early, you might not know what the pool was like. If you decide too late, maybe all the great people passed you by. Oh, that's and stressful. So, <laughs> yeah, I, totally. And so is dating. Yeah. And so what I want you to think about is – or, or, or how um, basically what the secretary problem is, is it's a solution to optimal stopping theory. And it basically says, go through 33% of the candidates. So out of 100, that'd be 33 people. After the first 33, say who was the single best person of that 33? That person becomes your benchmark. So basically what it means is I've gotten a sense of who's out there. And now I'm going to say this was the best person. And then the next time you find someone who you like as much or more than that benchmark person, you hire them. And so you got a sense of who is out there. You got a sense of the pool. You know the best that's out there. And then the next time you find someone like that, you snag them. And the reason why this is important is that if you didn't have this, you would just keep going and going and going. And probably a lot of great people would pass you by. And by the end, you'd be like, shit, I should have taken number 43 whatever it was, right? So the metaphor here is that you should get a sense of the pool, figure out who's great, and then when the next time you find someone like them, commit to them versus just saying, okay, yeah, well, he was great, but let me find someone who's as great as him plus more ambitious or plus funnier, whatever it is. So with dating, and what I talk about in the book is that you don't know how many people you're going to date. So what you can approximate is, let's say, and these are all very much um, – it just examples, um, you might say, I'm going to date from ages 18 to 40. And what is the one third mark through there? It would be at 26.1 years old. Okay. So that's having seen a third of the people. Think about your single best person that you dated through that time. 
And then the next time you find someone who you like as much or more than them, commit to that person. And so of course people say, I'm way past 26 years old, or well, what if I want them, but they don't want me back? Yes, there's absolutely complications to this, but I really want people to think about it in the broad sense of you likely have already found your benchmark person. The next time you find someone you like as much as them, make it work, commit to them, create a relationship with them. Don't just keep searching. So that was a very long-winded way of saying, if you want to find a relationship, do not give yourself an endless search. You really want to figure out what you want. And when you find that person, make it work with them. So it's kind of a solution also for like a maximizer, for example, who's like always going to be yeah, looking for like the next best, right? Yeah, it's absolutely trying to be an antidote to maximizers and really helping them see there is a cost to you keep looking. And when you keep looking, you're missing out on great people. And by the time you're ready, maybe those great people that you passed by already have someone and you might be at number 99 and you can't go back. Okay. You cleared that up a lot. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. It I have is a whole confusing. chart written out here. Yeah. 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 I'm, I, I'm glad that I was able to clear it up. I tried, but, but I, I just love that because it, it makes so much sense. Like at least, I mean- Again, using it as a metaphor, you know, there's some people who take things so literally, it's like, oh, shoot, I already hit 26.1, you know? Yeah, um, it's not trying to freak anyone out. It's really trying to say, in your head, you think that the answer is to look and look and look, and at a certain point, you will have looked for too long. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, moving on to the next area I have questions on, and that is talking about looking for like what are valuable things to look for in a partner and one of our first guests we had on my sister worked really closely with ty and so he came on uh i, I don't even know i think that was like one of our first 10 episodes like a couple of years ago i actually need to listen back to it and i, I love that you reference him yeah. and so what does matter more than we think what what yeah. should we look well, for in people like a lot of us and i know you do say like a lot of us have become so stuck to the terms that like that mm -hmm. that the app that that apps measure let's say whether it's like height job um but you reference a lot of other things that really are the things that make for a good relationship yeah so yeah shout out to ty tashiro he's wonderful we met in person when i was interviewing folks in new york for my book and i recommend his book the science of happily ever after and a lot of work in this chapter is influenced by him. So I basically break down in the chapter into what people think matters in relationship and actually matters less than people think and what matters more than people think. So in the what matters less than people think for long-term relationship success, that includes things like looks and money. Obviously both of those matter and there is a lot of research that um, you know, people who have more money can throw money at problems and, you know, you can spend more time with your partner if you can outsource things like cooking and cleaning. But a core part of the human experience is adaptation. So we get used to whatever we have. And mm -hmm. so if you win tons of money in the lottery, you might think on day one, my whole life's going to be going to change. The rest of my life, I'll be so much happier. But what we find is that a year after somebody wins the lottery, they're about as happy as they were before. Because once you get over the initial excitement, you just do go back to your baseline level and you get used to what you have. It's not like every day you wake up and you're like, holy shit, I have a Corvette. 
You just become a Corvette owner and you're used to it. And so with both money and looks, you end up adapting to it and it doesn't consistently make you happy over time. Then another thing that people overvalue is having the same personality. Oh, I'm so extroverted. I I need someone who's extroverted like me. That's just absolutely not what we find. A lot of times people want their complement. They want somebody where the two of them together are a great pair. They don't have to be the same. And the same thing goes for same hobbies. Oh, I love wine and my partner doesn't drink. This can't work. That's really not the case. Um, as long as a person's supportive of your separate hobbies, you can absolutely have your own worlds. And that's actually a healthy way of maintaining your individuality. All right. So now let's talk about what matters more. Wait, before, before oh, yeah. you go to this really quickly, the one thing, the one thing you said, which I loved in, in the looks department, you said like two lines and I hope I don't butcher them. One was- no problem. For every good-looking person out there, there's someone sick of having sex with them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I love that. And then you also talked about, like you made a reference to the Big Bang Theory about how a lot of good-looking people – well, first of all, one thing, for anyone going to read it who's our students, I just want to reference, like there's a lot of stuff about selectionism and why people initially chose good-looking people because it had to do with mm. like vitality and things like that. So anyone mm -hmm. studying, go look that up. But then you talk about how, you know, a lot of good looking, not everyone, obviously, but good looking people yeah. like are actually a lot of them are actually living in bubbles and because they never had to work harder for things or like performing oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in bed. You talk, I think about performing in bed. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's actually, yeah, it's um, it's from 30 Rock. Oh, that's what it is. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Rock. No problem. I was just trying to remember myself. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, some of these are like offhanded jokes, not things that I'm taking super seriously. But yes, there's an episode of 30 no, Rock it makes where sense. they talk about- It makes about, total sense. Yeah. A really good looking guy who- you know, is a surgeon but doesn't really know how to perform surgery or is a tennis coach and doesn't know how to play tennis. And it's like just being so handsome, everyone gives that person the benefit of the doubt. So that's, you know, just a joke that I put in there. But it's not but really it true. with everyone being like an influencer. It's like, I'm not going to get a job or like pursue anything because it's like, I'm hot. I took out, I think I took out this line, but I had something like, you know, even like Halle Berry and Beyonce were cheated on, like, you know, goddesses mm -hmm. of our time. And the point is that, of course, of course, many people want to find the most attractive person possible, but that won't solve all of your problems because even when you have someone really attractive because of this adaptation, you get used to how good looking they are and people are still very drawn to novelty. Yes. Okay. That was it. Sorry. I just, I love those lines. I literally no like sent it to, a, glad, I, I like sent it to a, a friend last night. Okay. Great. Now what does matter? Yeah, let's talk about that. So yes, a lot of this is influenced by Ty's work. So the two things that he talks about a lot in his TED Talk are loyalty and emotional stability. And what's interesting about this whole category of what matters more is that the first things, the things that matter less, you can tell those really quickly. You can tell them from a dating app profile or you can tell them on a first date, right? Like I know this person's hobbies. I know how good looking they are. Maybe you can approximate their salary from their job and you can figure out um, if you have the same hobbies and personality. The other things that I'm going to list are harder to figure out and that is challenging for people, but there are ways to, to learn about these things over time. So emotional stability is just, you know, how they handle conflict, how resilient they are, if they're able to 
maintain a sense of calm in a storm and loyalty. Of course, we know what that means. And then other things I mentioned here include the ability to make hard decisions together, the ability to fight well, and what side of you this person brings out. And that last one has really become so important to me as I coach people because let's say you meet someone where you're like, okay, this is exactly what I wanted. They have all the qualities I've been looking for. They check all the boxes. And then you spend time with them and afterwards you just feel kind of tired or depressed or anxious or worse about yourself. It doesn't matter who that person was on paper. It matters how they make you feel. And we can't always understand why. It might be that they remind you of a person that bullied you in high school or they remind you of a parent that abandoned you, but something's going on where they're just bringing out a side of you that doesn't feel good. And so focusing more on who are we together and what emerges between the two of us versus focusing on their resume qualities. And one thing you did say in there, you I think you were referencing, was it Gottesman? About that, the Gottmans? The yeah. Gottman, sorry. I, I should know that. I mean, I did enough couples therapy before my divorce. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Gotta laugh. Okay. So you talk about that there's always going to be problems, right? And so in, you reference something in the book. It says, when choosing a life-term partner, you'll inevitably be choosing a particular set of unresolvable problems. It's okay if you fight. Like, like can you fight well? Because like everyone's going to have something. Yeah. So I guess it's like, yeah. can you turn around from the situation? Right. I think that there's a sense of, oh, I'm dating my partner right now and I can tell you three things that are annoying about them. And then I guess I should date somebody else so that they don't have these things. And instead, if you think everyone will have problems and you get to choose the problems you're willing to deal with, that is a better way of thinking about it. So you're not looking for someone with whom you don't fight. You're looking for somebody with whom you fight well. That, Yeah, I like that. I like that you said that. That was Awesome. So I am going to use these last minutes that we have for you too. I thought this would be fun. And I had sent Alan, our producer here, my profile. I need you to be a tough critic and tell me what can I fix? Sure. Yeah. All right. So I'm showing you for context. Anyone listening, you guys cannot mm -hmm. see it. This is my J swipe profile. Um, I actually really do like Hinge and I do like the premise behind it in terms of like it's made to be deleted. That's like the best line. I It's a good Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That's, and their commercials are so cute. I know. I really – I think they're great. Yeah, designed to be deleted is a great tagline. Yeah, so cute. Okay. So this is – and one thing you do talk about in the book is like how context is different, which is so true. Mm -hmm. Like I could get lots of people liking me, let's say, maybe uh, – not lots, but whatever – on J Swipe, but then like on Locks Club, if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's mm -hmm. like a another Jewish one that's like membership. Like literally, no one likes me. So help me out here. Tell me what's going on with this profile. Sure. Yeah. Why don't you tell me about this first picture? So this first picture, and the problem is, is that I've read your book now, and so I now know what I'm doing wrong. But no, that's good. I'd rather have the critique come from you because that's, you know, as you know, you run a test prep company, like that's you incorporating the learning versus me just saying it to you again. So this first picture, I'm in Miami. I actually was um, making a video teaching a behavioral concept. I mean, not like anything professionally, but it was just there. And my friend had caught that as I was um, talking. However, I'm not showing teeth. And according to your book, teeth, uh, let's see what, 
they I wouldn't emphasize the stuff from the book too much about the hinge profile things because I've since worked there now for three years and I have better data on that. So I wouldn't overthink the section in the book that's like, you know, showing teeth or smiling or black and white. We have updated research on that. Okay. Interesting. All right. So here's this picture. Now on J swipe, it's like just effing right about yourself, right? It's not like the prompts like Mm -hmm. hinge, which I also do like about hinge because it's like, you know, you could see a little bit about someone's personality. So here, should I, should I read it to everyone listening? I can't tell if this is embarrassing or not, but whatever. I put myself out there for all you guys. Here we go. Um, yeah, you can read it. All right. Maybe, maybe this is like, you know, <laughs> I'm dying. Like maximizing my search. All right. So behavior analyst turned entrepreneur started a test prep company. I light up with anything involving humor, creativity, growing psychology, art, behavioral economics, slash behavior in general. I'm at a place in my life I'm proud to be, but always looking to grow and would love to do so with someone else. South African parents. I found like that was like a way to like pair with some people. And I do like feel South African. This one I never know how to throw in. Okay. It says I'm divorced and have an awesome little dude who's almost two. You'll most likely fall more in love with him than me. It's but I'm cool with that. I don't know how else to say it, but I'm mentally, emotionally, and financially stable. Think that's a huge win in today's world. Looking for someone who's comfortable in their own skin, has their own interests and passions, values their Jewish identity, and can be a badass teammate. I'm someone you want on your team. Swipe right if you're down to watch Dateline or Intervention together. Don't swipe right if you can't handle sarcasm. Let's save time and do a FaceTime vibe check first. I think the profile, I think the writing is great. I love how you talk about your son. You sound proud. You sound like you know yourself and you're confident and you're not apologizing for the fact that you're divorced. I think the write-up is great. The first picture I don't love. I want to see your other pictures, okay. but it kind of has a like, don't fuck with me vibe. Yeah, I was going to say that. Like, yeah, it's not approachable. Feel, My it doesn't feel approachable. That. Yeah, it really doesn't. It your doesn't even like. Yeah, like, it doesn't match the personality that I've met today. And like, it's not that there's a rule that you're violating about smiling. It's just like, it kind of looks like, oh, I've like seen some shit and, you know, I'm, <laughs> okay, I'm I skeptical, love and, I which love doesn't it. match how I've met, you, how I've seen you. So let's look at the other pictures. Oh, there's me. And Kobe. Oh, that's really cute. That's Kobe. I like this son. one. But there, I know there's, okay. Tell me. There's multiple people. Yeah, I like this one. I think it's cute. I wouldn't make it your first one, but I think it's good to include. What else is there? That's me and my sis. That one's cute. It's like kind of blurry. It kind of blurry. I think the angle is so intense yeah. that it's kind of like that isn't what she looks like. That's like an extreme angle selfie okay. position oh. that people – and also like you, you don't need that many pictures – you already have one with Casey. Right. Okay. I would choose like one. Anyone listening, just so you know, this is like me. I was a bridesmaid in a wedding. So I look at the problem is I would love to use my wedding photos because the best I ever looked in my entire life, but that's weird. <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah. I, I think I would skip this one. There's just something that feels like not okay. authentic about it. I think you only need one with your son, but you could have two. But basically, like so far, we've only had one picture of just you and it wasn't the best one. I know. I'm like weird in photos. And what's alone. the last one? That's not that. No, that's not that. So that was all of those. Now Alan is showing you some you could choose oh. from. Okay, I sent these to Alan okay. before. Okay, mm. I think this one's okay. Mm. Let's keep going. These are 
Kind of like same day. Yeah, no, I wouldn't put same day. Let's keep going. These are – Yeah. I just was like – Yeah, I think you need some new photos. I would have a friend go take pictures of you. Um, Like I would get ready in whatever way makes you feel comfortable and then go somewhere with good lighting or go at, you know, the golden hour before sunset and just take some new photos just of you and, you know, bring a friend who's funny and have them make you laugh or say silly things before they take the picture or, you know, go play with a puppy, like something that will bring out a great smile. But I really think you need a new first photo, like that all important first photo of just like your face, what you look like. I think I totally get that friends and family are super important to you. So you want to have that on the profile. But I think mostly people just want to see like, what does Liat look like? And I feel like we're not really getting a sense of that from these pictures. I know. I'm so awkward in pictures alone. And I realize every picture I have that I look decent in is with someone else. Yeah. So I think you just need to do a photo shoot or like take new photos because I feel like you're, you don't have the, you don't yet have the ones that I would be looking for. Perfect. So if anyone in Dallas wants to volunteer to come take pictures of me one day, I am totally open to it. Just go ahead and reach out. <laughs> Casey, you might be me, like behind the camera. I was going to say making you laugh. Like I, we're the most comfortable with each other. So I think yeah. like I could catch you in like your good like moments and make you laugh. So it's like, natural. yeah, what? When my husband and I were taking these selfies for part of our wedding invitation and we had like literally four versions of our wedding because of the pandemic. So this was, I think, like V1. Um, right before we took the selfie, we would go back and forth making each other laugh. So like one person would – you basically just have to like say um, – like, like, I like think of a crazy vision, like, you know, think of our brother-in-law negotiating at the DMV or just like something ridiculous. <laughs> and then that would happen. And then we, we'd take the photo and like the photos really are super fun because of That's that. Fun. I like that. So based on your new research, is the candid thing still better than? Yeah. Candids are good, but like, there's a lot of planteds you know, like planned candidates that people do, which is kind of what we're talking about here. So it's like, okay, if we really like had you play with your friend's puppies and then took a bunch of pictures, like sure, it's candid, but it's like, yeah, we're trying to get a good picture. So I can just in our last few minutes quickly summarize the biggest things from our most recent hinge research. So first photo is super important. You just want a clear headshot, no filters, sunglasses, et cetera. You want at least one photo that shows your full body. That's something that people are looking for. You want one picture with friends or family to show us your social life, but not where it's hard to see which person you are. People don't like having to play that game. And you don't want all photos with friends and family because it can be distracting. You want activity photos, you doing something you love. So if you do have, you know, like a, a cute screenshot from the podcast or you giving a talk somewhere, like whatever that means to you, that's maybe more like what I would do. But for somebody, it might be like cooking or hiking or playing the piano, like just kind of paint a picture for us of what your life is like and use the pictures to do that. And then also having variety, which is, you know, you wouldn't want like all, you know, too many pictures from like you with your son on a fall day or something like that. Right. It's like, wait, we get that, but we have already seen that part of you. Can you show us a different part of you? And so we're like really using the profile to express different sides of yourself. Wait, Alan, you didn't share the one photo. That's what I need to know about. The one in, at Muay Thai. Weird, right? I like that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, 
I think that one's cute. I feel like it's like people will ask questions about it. And is that like a big hobby of yours? Eh, it was. And then I, I mean, I was like very into it for years. I just like dabbled back after years of not doing it. Okay. I mean, that one really has, that's up to you if it feels genuine to you. But like, if that is some, like, think about it this way. It's like your profile is actually your opening line. You're putting out there what you're about and then people respond to it. And so if you want to have conversations about that, great. But when I just asked you about it, I feel like you kind of yeah. hesitated and were like, uh, well, that's the thing I used to do, but I don't do it anymore. So yeah. I do think it's a cute picture and it's a cool hobby. But if it puts you on the defensive, <laughs> it doesn't feel like where you want to start. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's yeah. a great advice. No, I figured it's like. Also, it's a little intimidating as well. It's like I could kick your ass. Like I'm going to sit here and like. <laughs> I think people would be into it. No, actually, a lot of people comment on are. that. Yeah, I know, but it's like yeah, you had a yeah. lot of likes on that. I but think also, it's a, like, I think it's interesting and attractive and kind of sets you apart. But it has to represent you, not an aspirational v- version of you or a former version of you. I love that. This me sitting here right now is the current version of me, where you could find me most of the day. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think you with the podcast mic in front of you does feel like this is where my head is at. This is what I think about in the shower and before I go to bed. Like that feels special and someone's absolutely going to be like, tell me about your podcast. Like, and that also feels like it's painting a picture of the entrepreneur part of you. So I think like I could totally see you having like a screenshot of, you know, whatever platform we're in right now. Like that, I, I think that feels true to you. Okay. That's good. Thank you, Alan. We'll have to do that. I think I have more pictures of you than you know that on my phone that I should send you. Yeah, I don't have any pictures of my Yeah, that's phone. a good assignment for you. Mm-hmm. I take a lot of pictures of you. I'm a creep. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I don't like I, – I don't know. I don't really ever take pictures of myself or even like selfies. I mean, I know selfies are – Like I think even, even when you guys were in Miami, it looks like you were at Wynwood or something. Like you could have done a photo shoot there. It's just know. the picture that you chose is not the right direction. Okay. Totally. I'm going to take this feedback. I am going to make it cool. All right. And then I'll, I'll have to like – okay, so this is my baseline. All right, everyone? Anyone looking at this video or listening to the pod, this is my baseline. We're going to see how much I start slaying after this. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, Logan, thank you so yes. much. This podcast, I – Tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. Yeah. People can find me on my website, loganyuri.com. They can find out their dating tendency at loganyuri.com slash quiz. I also do one-on-one coaching and I teach a really fun class called Propel. We just wrapped up last week and another one will be coming soon. And all that info is on my website or they can follow me at loganyuri on Instagram or Twitter. And of course, people can check out my book, How to Not Die Alone. And, and it's on Amazon. You could buy that on Amazon. Get the book. It's an easy read. I tell you, like, as someone who has a hard time reading through it, like, a lot of – it's, like, it has all the content, but it's not, like, unapproachable. So, really, go get the book. It's cute. It has, like, two toothbrushes on the front. So, go check it I out. That. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well – Logan, thank you thank so much you, for thank coming you. on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to meet you both. I'm excited. <laughs> all right. You guys know where to find us. You could find us on behaviorbitches.com, Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. Head on over to the Apple Podcast app to leave us five-star reviews because I literally get off to that. I mean, you could listen anywhere else, but when you leave the review, make sure to steal someone who has an iPhone. With that, as always, love ya. Mean it. 
Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Today. 